Babylon's banksters, temples, genomes, and well, exercisingyourmind.com. Babylon's banksters, temples, genomes, and you're listening to Babylon's banksters, temples, genomes, and well, we're going to get to that in a moment. Presented by Hakeem Alibokis Alexander on Spreaker, social podcasting, Wisdom, social audio inc., and Call In, social podcasting. Presented for World Reading Club in association with exercisingyourmind.com and Uniquilibrium. This edition's reading focus comes to us from Babylon's Banksters, The Alchemy of Deep Physics, High Finance, and Ancient Religions. This is section or chapter eight. I don't even know how these are really organized, what these things are called. And it's titled Temples or Templates. Oh, wow. Did I put temples? It's supposed to be templates. So templates genomes and banksters or why do they all seem to marry cousins and end up with colossally stupid kids let me change that uh from temples to templates he's been talking so much about temp uh temples that i mistakenly labeled it as such but that's a quick fix right there on uh on uh wisdom and let me do that for colin as well yeah, this is chapter eight. Um, yeah, templates. Oh, I said I said temples. Hey, it's all good. Let me just make that quick fix there. What's up, Tony? Once again, welcome back. Um, this should be templates, right? Templates. All right, let's get that in there, right? Templates. There we go. That's all good. Let me hit save there. There's a live chat. There's a caller's queue. It's not private. Good. And my information, my links are all there. Perfect. All right, let's get back to this. How about I try that again? All right. So this edition's reading focus comes to us from Babylon's Banksters by Joseph P. Farrell, 2010. This is chapter eight. Templates, genomes, and banksters, or... Why do they all seem to marry cousins and end up with colossally stupid kids? I'm uh, using this second device um, to read from. I have the ebook here. So um, on Colin, I won't be able to, I'll be looking in every once in a while to say hi if there's anybody popping into the room or if there are any questions or anything to address in the text, but let's go. This starts with a quote, and the quote is, Inbreeding in European royal families has declined slightly in relation to the past. This is likely due to clear scientific evidence of genetic degeneration. And that is uh, from Inbreeding from Wikipedia. Hey, Wikipedia's got the uh, got the clue in there. All right, let's continue here. Babylon's Banksters, Chapter Eight: Templates, 
genomes and banksters or why do they uh, you know seem to all seem to marry cousins and end up with colossally stupid kids Whew. all right what's uh, let me check my well we're just going to go until the wheels fall off here both in ancient and modern times we have discerned the persistent outline of an association of an international class of banksters with those engaged in advanced scientific research. And we have also seen that this class has endeavored to monopolize not only the false alchemical power of the issuance of debt as a facsimile of money, but also to monopolize the genuine alchemical power of the physics of the transmutative physical medium itself. That's a very, very uh, important part right there. That this class has endeavored to monopolize not only the false alchemical power of the issuance of debt as a facsimile of money, but also to monopolize the genuine alchemical power of the physics of the transmutative physical medium itself. But what about the period between these two widely separated historical poles? Did that class continue to exist? And if so, what were they doing, right? And we're talking about both in ancient and modern times, right? What about the period between these two widely separated historical poles? Did that class continue to exist? And if so, what were they doing? Is there evidence to suggest that it continued as a class in more or less uninterrupted continuity from ancient times? And is there evidence to suggest that it continued its close association and monitoring of scientific achievement? Moreover, it was seen that some allege that the Rothschild family secretly traces their family origins back to the Sumerian conqueror Nimrod. Is there any truth to or, for that matter, any broad corroboration of these allegations? A. Ancient Rome. To answer these questions, a closer look at ancient Rome is in order. Professor Tenny Frank was a professor at Johns Hopkins University at the turn of the last century and was the author of a well-known treatise, An Economic History of Rome. This work became such a standard in the field that it became the basis for entries in the Cambridge Ancient History and the Oxford History of Rome. In the course of his researches, Professor Frank discovered an interesting thing about the population of ancient Rome during the period between the Republic and the final emergence of the Empire, and that is that the population was not Roman or Latin at all, but, in a word and without much exaggeration, Babylonian. In an article written for the American Historical Review, Frank begins by noting how the problem of the ancient Roman race came to his attention. Visiting the ancient tombs of Rome, Frank's, Frank observes that the historian will notice a curious and even peculiar thing. He finds pre-nomen and nomen promising enough, but the cognomen Cognomena all seem awry. Cognomia, cognomena all seem awry. 
L. Lucretius Pamphilus, A. Emilius Alexa, M. Clodius Philostosgas. Do not smack a freshman Latin. Hmm. Let's look at those names again. L. Lucretius Pamphilus, A. Emilius Alexa, M. Clodius Philost Osgood, Philo. Philostoiscus, huh, that would be probably better. Philostoiscus, do not smack a freshman Latin, and he will not readily find the Roman writers now extant. Oh, and he will not readily find in the Roman writers now extant an answer to the questions that these inscriptions invariably raise. Do these names imply that the Roman stock was completely changed after Cicero's day? And was the satirist Juvenal recording a fact when he wailed that the Tiber had captured the waters of the Syrian Orantes? If so, are these foreigners ordinary immigrants, or did Rome become a nation of ex-slaves and their offspring? Frank's tentative answers are even more unsettling than the original questions he asks. Studying almost 14,000 names, Professor Frank discovered that between 300 BC and 300 AD, the population of Italian Rome underwent a drastic change in ethnicity, such that by the end of the period, the vast majority of the Italian Roman population had Greek surnames and not Latin at all. For reasons which will presently appear, I have accepted the Greek cognomen as a true indication of recent foreign extraction, and since the citizens of native stock did not as a rule unite in marriage with freemen, a Greek cognomen in a child or one parent is sufficient of status, i.e. was foreign. Professor Frank quickly dispatches the idea that this was simply due to a popularity craze of certain names. On the other hand, the question has been raised whether a man with a Greek cognomen must invariably be a foreign stock. First of all, I got to stop. And what is this cognomen? Does that mean name, right? Cognomen or cognomen? Cognomen. Let's take a look at Mr. and Mrs. Googles. Mr. Senior and Senora Googles. Let's take a look. Cognomen. C O G N O M. E N cognomen definition. That's what we're going for. Google, come on. All right. Cognomen. Cognomen. A third personal name given to an ancient Roman citizen, typically passed down from a father to a son. For example, Marcus Tullius Cicero. So the Cicero would be the cognomen, a name or a nickname. Interesting. A third personal name given to an ancient Roman citizen typically passed down from father to son. For example, Marcus Tullius Cicero. So it's co, which is together with, and nomen, name. I'll say conomen. Yeah, that's what I thought when I was reading it like Italian. Cognomen. But it's conomen. Nomen. Conomen with name. Latin form co together with nomen, nomen, which is name. Okay. All right, let's get back to our reading here. So on, on the other hand, the question has been raised whether a man with a Greek cognomen 
must invariably be of foreign stock. Could it not be that Greek names became so popular that, like biblical and classical names today, they were accepted by the Romans of native stock? In the last days of the empire, this may have been the case, but the inscriptions prove that the Greek cognomen was not in good repute. I have tested this matter by classifying all the instances in the 13,900 inscriptions where the names of both father and son appear. From this, from, from this, it appears that fathers with Greek names are very prone to give Latin names to their children, whereas the reverse is not true. Hmm. Fathers with Greek names are prone to give Latin names to their children, but fathers with Latin names are not prone to give Greek names to their children. Okay. Thus, the conclusion... Oh, I, I gotta, I gotta figure out where my character is here. Okay, this is a, okay, my, my narration. Thus, the conclusion for Professor Frank was rather obvious. Clearly, the Greek name was considered as a sign of dubious origin among the Roman, Roman plebeians, and the freedom, and the freedman family that rose to any social ambitions made short shrift of it. For these reasons, therefore. I consider that the presence of a Greek name in the immediate family is good evidence that the subject of the inscription is of servile or foreign stock. The conclusion of our pros and cons must be that nearly 90% of the Roman-born folk represented in the above-mentioned sepulchral inscriptions are of foreign extraction. But this posed a rather large problem. And to see what it is and how Professor Frank dealt with it, we need to recall a bit of obvious history. The problem is the mere presence of a Greek surname on tomb inscriptions does not necessarily mean the occupant is Greek. The simple reason for this is that after Alexander the Great's conquest of Mesopotamia, Persia, and Egypt, the Greek language spread far and wide and became something of an international language, much as English or French is today. Thus, a Greek surname on a tomb does not necessarily imply that all these Roman tombs had Greek occupants. But this raises a far larger and more significant question. If they were not necessarily Greek, then what were they? What was the predominant ethnic stock they represented? Frank minces no words. Who are these Romans of the new type and whence do they come? How many are immigrants and how many are of servile extraction? Of what race are they? Frank's method of dealing with this question is to take Rome's classical authors and satirists, satirists at their words. And from this, an important and very significant fact emerges. Noting that most of the sociological and political data are of the empire are provided by satirists. Frank then reasons himself to a rather astonishing conclusion. When Tacitus informs us that in Nero's day, a great many of Rome's senators and knights were descendants of slaves, and that the native stock had dwindled to surprisingly small proportions, we are not sure whether we are not to take it as an exaggerated thrust by an indignant Roman of the old stock. To discover some new light upon these fundamental questions of Roman history, I have tried to gather such fragmentary data as the corpus of inscriptions might afford. The evidence is never decisive in its purport, and it is always, by the very nature of the material, partial in scope, 
but at any rate, it may help us to interpret our literary sources to some extent. It has at least convinced me that Juvenal and Tacitus were not exaggerating. It is probably that when these men wrote a very small percentage of the free plebeians on the streets of Rome could prove in mixed Italian descent. By far, the larger part, perhaps 90%, had oriental blood in their veins. Huh. One only has to read a bit between the lines to see what Professor Frank is implying. For Juvenal, let it be recalled, had complained of the Syrian Orantes River flowing into the Tiber, a metaphor for people of Chaldean, i.e. Babylonian, extraction having flowed into the bloodlines of ancient Roman stock. These dregs call themselves Greeks, he complains, but how small a portion is from Greece? The river Orantes has long flowed into the Tiber. Hmm. So, let's see. Frank is implying for Juvenal, let it be recalled, had complained of the Syrian Orantes River, so the Syrian Orantes River flowing into the Tiber, a metaphor for people of Chaldean slash Babylonian extraction, having flowed into the bloodlines of the ancient Roman stock. Huh. All right. Continuing. The basic historical outlines are now clear, for as Roman conquests spread into the eastern Mediterranean and eventually conquered the old uh, Seleucid Empire, i.e. the portion of Alexander's empire based in Mesopotamia with its capital in, at Babylon, many of these peoples made their way back to the Italian peninsula as slaves, and following the relatively lenient Roman custom of manumission of slaves upon the death of their owner, these later became freemen and the backbone of the Roman economy in the very lap of the empire itself. One, hmm. The change in Roman racial stock and imperial policy. This deserves a sip of tea real quick, so wet my palate. All right, this is coming up on... Uh, huh. The change in Roman racial stock and imperial policy. This brings us to the economics and finance part of the story. The part that is, for our purposes, the most significant part. There are other questions that enter into the problem of change of race at Rome, for the solution of which it is even more difficult to obtain statistics. For instance, one asks, without hope of a sufficient answer, why the native stock did not better hold its own. Yet there are at hand not a few reasons. We know, for instance, that when Italy had been devastated by Hannibal and a large part of its population put to the sword, immense bodies of slaves were brought up in the east to fill the void, and that during the second century BC, when the plantation system with its slave service was coming into vogue, the natives were pushed out of the small farms and many disappeared to the province of the ever-expanding empire. Thus, during the thirty years before Tiberius Gracchus, the census statistics show no increase. During the first century BC, the importation of captives and slaves continued while the free-born citizens were being wasted in the social, sullen, and civil wars. Augustus affirms that he had had a half a million citizens under arms, one-eighth of Rome's citizens, and at the most vigorous part. And at that, the most vigorous part. 
during the early empire, 20 to 30 legions, drawn, of course, from the best free stock, spent their 20 years of vigor in garrison duty, while the slaves, exempt from such services, lived at home and increased in numbers. In other words, the native stock was supported by less than a normal birth rate, whereas the stock of foreign extraction had not only a fairly normal birth rate, but a liberal quota of manumissions to its advantage. The result of this combination of bad policy, wars, and heavy reliance on slaves was that the original Roman race, at least on the Italian peninsula, went under. However, there were two significant things that this importation of Mesopotamian slaves accomplished. First, these slaves brought with them, of course, their culture and religion. Secondly, they brought with them their Babylonian business and banking practices. Thus, even when this population were slaves, the great majority of the normal practical day-to-day -day commerce of Rome, farming, construction, instruction, and so on, was conducted by slaves. And when freed, not only did their religion and culture penetrate Roman society to a significant degree, but this group gradually penetrated the highest reaches of the Roman imperial government itself. The result, in short, was that the Mesopotamian and Syrian merchants effectively colonized Rome's provinces bordering the Mediterranean Sea. Roman banking was all but monopolized in their hands as the influence of Mesopotamian mystery cults extended throughout the empire, and the activities of the temple continued to be associated with commerce. In a certain limited sense, then, the Roman Empire may be viewed as but the latest imperial front for that ancient class of bullion brokers, and this change of ethnic stock in the heart of the empire, the Italian peninsula itself, finally explains why the bullion exchange policies of Rome vis-a-vis -vis the Far East appear to be the product of deliberate manipulation. 2. The next stage. Venice and banking. The next stage. Venice and banking. Huh. That's, what does Venice and banking have to do with all this? Let's take a look. All right. A quick glance at the subsequent history of this class will show the connections to modern time. For the next stage in this connective history was provided by Attila the Hun, who, ravaging the Italian peninsula and even Rome itself, forced many of these mercantile families to flee northward to the protective lagoons and marshes of what would later become the Middle Ages center of commerce and banking in Western Europe, Venice. In the very early 9th century, Venice was formally recognized as a part of the Eastern Roman Empire, and thus began its rise as a financial power, for it was granted special trading and tax exemptions throughout the empire. But the pattern, a mercantile and banking class operating behind special imperial privileges, remained the same. As noted in Chapter 4, however, the Fourth Crusade eventually captured Constantinople, and with that, the empire's monopoly on the right to coin gold was broken, and Western European monarchs began to coin such money. But it was Venice that had funded the mercenary army of French knights that captured Constantinople, and it was the Venetian 
doge, Enrico Dandolo, that imposed a puppet Latin government on the ancient Eastern Empire. By this point, the great Venetian oligarchical families and their family fondi, or fortunes, literally funds, uh, their family fondi, or fortunes, literally funds, were in place. The Cornaro, the Dandolo, the Contarini, the Morosini, Sorsi, and Tron fortunes. Tron. <laughs> Tron. That movie Tron, like Voltron, Megatron, Galvatron. All right. Tron. What does Tron mean? Anyway, I'm going to look that up. Tron. All right. Three, on to Amsterdam, London, the Reformation, and the Wars of Religion. Researcher Webster Tarpley, in three short paragraphs, outlines the connection of Venetian banking and politics in subsequent European history during the Reformation and Counter-Reformation and the period up to the English, English Glorious Revolution. Why are the British liberal imperialists called the Venetian Party? Well, for one thing, they call themselves the Venetian Party. The future Prime Minister, Benjamin Disraeli, will write in his novel, Coningsby, that the Whig aristocrats of 1688 wanted to establish England in a high aristocratic republic on the model of Venice, making the kings into doges and with a Venetian constitution. During the War of the League of Cambria, 1509-17, an alliance of virtually every power in Europe threatened to wipe out the Venetian oligarchy. The Venetians knew that France or Spain could crush them like so many flies. The Venetians responded by launching the Protestant Reformation with three proto-stooges, Luther, Calvin, and Henry VIII. At the same time, Cardinal Contarini and his Jesuits made Aristotle a central component of the Catholic Counter-Reformation and the Council of Trent, and put Dante and Piccolomini, uh, Piccolomini on the index of prohibited books. The result, what, what, what? They put Dante and Piccolomini on the index of prohibited books. Wow, there's an index of prohibited books. Right. The result was a century and a half of wars and of religion and a little dark age culminating with in the great crisis of the 17th century. Venice was a cancer consciously planning its own metastasis. From their lagoon, the Venetians chose a swamp and an island facing the North Atlantic, Holland, and the British Isles. A swamp. <laughs> Here, the hegemonic Giovanni party would relocate their family fortunes, their fondi, and their characteristic epistemology. France was also colonized, but the main bets were placed further north. First, Cardinal Contarini's relative and neighbor, Francesco Zorzi, was sent to serve as a sex advisor to Henry VIII, whose raging libido would be the key to Venetian hopes. Zorzi brought Rosicrucian mysticism and Freemasonry to a land that, ha that Venetian bankers had been looting for centuries. All right. Reading between the lines, one notes again the familiar and shadowy pattern of the ancient bullion brokers' alliance with the temple. In this case, the temple of Renaissance Catholicism and nascent pro prote uh, and nascent pro 
oh my gosh. Protestant in, pro, pro, Protestant in a, Protestantism, Protestantism, Protestant, right? Protestants? Protestantism. Protestantism. Yeah, Protestantism. All right, let's try it again. In this case, the Temple of Renaissance Catholicism and nascent Protestantism, Protestantism for one and the same. Oh my God. Google, we're going to go to your translate again. How do we say this word? Let's go to translate. Protestantism. Protestants, right? Protestantism. God, that is such a fucking shit's messing me up right now. Protestantism, Protestantism, sounds so much like protest, prostitutionism, Protestantism, Pro Protestantism. All right, let's. Oh, let's try this. Trans. Uh, there we go. There's the translate. I just want to see what it sounds like. Protestant. Come on, English. Pro, let's just want to see what somebody else pronounces it like, right? Protestant? Protestant. Protestantism. I think it's going to be Protestantism. Protestantism. Oh my gosh, why are you not behaving? Protestant. I want to hit. Yeah. Is it a word? Okay, so let's try this. Protestantism. 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 Protestant. Protestantism. Okay, Protestantism. Protestantism. She's pronouncing that T pretty hard there. All right. Protestant. Protestantism. God damn. Protestantism. That's a stupid word. All right. Uh... Let's try again. In this case, the temple, right, reading between the lines, one notes again the familiar and shadowy pattern of the ancient bullion brokers alliance with the temple. In this case, the temple of Renaissance Catholicism and nascent Protestantism for one and the same financial power is behind both and manipulating a conflict for its own profit. More importantly, one notes another sinister and familiar pattern, that of David Rockefeller's republic of a global elite of intellectuals and bankers at the apex of a pyramid of power, Protestantism. Gosh darn it. I don't have to read that word again. Protestantism. B, the myth of the Rothschild descent from Nimrod, a second look. All of this provides an interesting context in which to view the allegations that the Rothschild dynasty secretly chase, traces its family origins back to Nimrod, the conqueror of the Old Testament closely associated with the Tower of Babel incident, incident or Babel-Babel incident, right? The careful reader will have observed throughout this and preceding chapters that there are at least three different types of historical continuity operating. One the alleged continuity of a bloodline or family as is alleged for the Rothschilds and their secret family descent from Nimrod and hence from the Babylonian bullion brokers. Two, the continuity of methods, alliance with and operation through the temple, 
cultivation of science and suppression of certain scientific and technological advancement, the promotion of the facsimile of money as circulating privately created debt, and the policy of such families to intermarry within their own class and, in some cases, their own bloodlines. And three, the continuity of class, culture, family fortunes, and even in the obvious descent of Venetian banking from the oriental stock of slaves imported to Rome of ethnic stock. Viewing this list, it is evident that so far as the Rothschild-Nimrod allegation is concerned, there is a broad corroboration of the pattern as is evident from points two and three. But is there anything more specific that would tend to corroborate point one, or at least suggest that it might be true? Indeed, there is. The famous register of nobility in Britain, Burke's peerage records, numerous instances of members of the European Rothschild clan marrying each other. The famous register of nobility in Britain, Burke's peerage, records numerous... Okay, there we go. That's what, how it was read. The famous register of nobility in Britain, Burke's peerage, records numerous instances of members of the European Rothschild clan marrying each other. For example, it records that Evelina de Rothschild, daughter of Lionel Nathan Baron de Rothschild and Charlotte de Rothschild, married Ferdinand James Anselm Rothschild, who was the son of Ansel Solomon Rothschild and Charlotte Rothschild. Solomon Albert Anselm Rothschild was son of Anselm Solomon and Charlotte Rothschild and married Bettina Caroline de Rothschild, daughter of Mayor Alphonse de Rothschild and Leonora de Rothschild. But interestingly enough, in the midst of this consanguineous, consanguineous uh, interbreeding warren, Alphonse Mayor Rothschild but interestingly enough, in the midst of this consanguineous interbreeding warren, Alphonse Mayer Rothschild and Clarice Seb Sebag Montefiore had a son, born in 1922, to whom they gave the peculiarly Jewish Christian Babylonian name of Albert Anselm Salomon Nimrod Rothschild. The child died only 16 years later in 1938. Hmm. Albert Anson Salomon Nimrod Rothschild. Of course, one male heir in all of the proliferating Rothschild Warren is hardly conclusive, but it is suggestive that the name had some significance for the clan known only to itself. But there is something else that suggests that the allegation must be taken seriously. Among the banking clan's vast financial network, there is one financial group that raises the eyebrows, and this is the Rothschild-Nemrod Diversified Holdings Group. The name Nemrod, N-E-M-R-O-D, is, of course, yet another phoneticization of the name Nimrod, since the biblical character's name in ancient Hebrew was written without vowel, simply as N-M-R-D. Hmm. It can thus be phoneticized as Nimrod, Nimrud, Nemrod, or Nemrud, and so on. That's right. The use of the biblical conqueror's name for a mutual fund investment group thus connotes, thus connotes 
aggressiveness, risk-taking, and an intention to dominate and conquer by financial means, of course. <clears throat> but why the evident obsession of such families? Witness the Rothschild dynasty, with marrying distant relatives and members of their own clans and classes. The answer to that question requires a closer look at human DNA, at its own remarkable connections to sacred geometries and the alchemical physics of the medium, and at the family tree of Nimrod himself. C. Human DNA and the Hermetic Code. I'm curious if they're going to mention the uh, eventually at some point in time that uh, the the uh, mitochondrial DNA is the only perfect copy of DNA that's passed from a woman to her children and can only pa be passed from women to their children. And so, for example, if a woman has a child, um, like a son, for example, it'll pass to the son perfectly in the little circular ring of, of mitochondrial DNA, an exact copy of from the, the mother, but not of the father, always from mother to child. And if that son has a child, then he cannot pass on that perfect copy of DNA. Um, it'll be something different. Whereas if that woman, that same woman has a daughter, um, that uh, that daughter will then pass on that perfect exact copy to her child. So you have mother to daughter, daughter to her child, and if that child is a daughter, it can keep passing it on, unbroken in an exact copy all the way through the matrilineal um, uh, matrilineal uh, heritage all the way down, but not through males. Anyway, here we go. C, human DNA and the hermetic code. One, the I Ching. Interesting. An esoteric doctrine held that mankind was a microcosm, a little universe, who mirrored in his very constitution, i.e. his size, shape, makeup, and most importantly, in his unique combination of a corporeal, uh, corporeal component, a body, and a spiritual, or if one prefers, hyper-dimensional component, his soul and personhood, the larger universe. British researcher Michael Hayes, taking this doctrine seriously, decided to examine it more closely, and as a result, found a breathtaking connection between the code of sacred geometry and the fascination with certain numbers and human DNA. I wonder, wonder, wonder what it'll be. Human DNA. Let's see. In order to, wait, where is this guy from? British research, good, I gotta give him this accent then. In order to give myself a kind of visual aid, an image of the code in action, I had drawn up a diagram incorporating the keys of the biochemical components involving the process. Process. These were four, three, 64, and 22. That is, there are four kinds of chemical bases. It takes three of them to make what is known as a triplet codon, an amino acid template, of which there are exactly 64 variations. Each of these codons correspond to one or another of 22 more complex components, namely the 20 amino acids and the two coded instructions for starting and stopping the process of synthesis. 
in my diagram, the number 64, the number of triplet codon combinations, 4 times 4 times 4, was represented by a square grid, 8 divisions across and 8 down, like a chessboard. Once he had done this, however, Hayes noticed a very odd and striking connection to one of esotericism's oldest systems of divination, the Chinese I Ching. I realized, in fact, that the whole diagram echoed the format of the Chinese, the famous Chinese work known as the I Ching, whose 64 basic texts are each identified with a six-line symbol called a hexagram. But how does Hayes's table and its numbers of 4, 3, 64, and 22 resemble the I Ching in particular and the Hermetic Code of Sacred Geometry in general. Hayes explains, The I Ching was intended for use as an oracle. You pose a question, toss three coins, and note the way they fall. A preponderance of heads gives you an unbroken line, yang, positive. Tails, a broken line, ying, negative. The results are written down as a solid or dashed line. Repeat the action six times and you have called up one of the hexagrams. The accompanying text supplies your answer. In other words, repeating the action six times and writing down each result, a broken or solid line, above one above another will produce a picture of solid and broken lines, of which there are only 64 possible results. The pictogram, or hexagram, is then looked up in a book which has a text explaining the divinatory properties of each hexagram. But where do the other numbers, 4, 3, and 22, fit into this pattern? Let's begin with the number 4. The number of fundamental chemical bases in the genetic code, adenine, thymine, guanine, and cytosine upon which the whole process of amino acid synthesis depends. The I Ching, I discovered, embodies exactly the same principle. The 64 hexagrams are actually constructed from four basic two-line symbols known as the Xiang. These, in turn, were derived from the two fundamental lines, one broken and one unbroken, known respectively as yin and yang. Next, the number three. The genetic code, as was evident, obeyed the law of three forces, which is why only triplet codons are evident in the process of creation. The three forces are initially represented in the Book of Changes by the two original yin, negative female, and yang, positive male, and neutral. The third invisible or mystical ingredient, the Tao. Hayes recalls his reaction to this discovery. By this time, having recognized so many similarities between the I Ching and the genetic code, I was convinced that I was on to something of profound importance, and my emotional state reflected this. I was highly charged. No way, I thought, could the identical features of these two apparently disparate systems be the product of mere coincidence. For they were not only identical in structure, it seemed that they each had a common purpose, which was to facilitate the process of evolution. So far, so good. But what about the number 22? Was there some correspondence between the I Ching and DNA involving this number? Hayes puts the problem this way. Now, these hexagrams, as I said earlier, just like the biochemical hexagrams of the genetic code, each consist of two trigrams, two three-line symbols, one above, one below. 
The trigrams, eight in number, were derived from the four Siam by successively placing over each of them the two original broken and unbroken lines. When these same two lines are placed over the eight trigrams, the result is 16 figures of four lines. Repeat the process once again and you get 32 figures of five lines, and a final similar movement produces the 64 hexagrams. Unlike the four and five line figures, the eight trigrams, known as the kua, are given particular prominence in the system. I muse over these for a long time, juggling with their numbers. Eight threes, three eights, twenty-four. I needed twenty-two. Close, but not close enough. Certainly the number eight was an integral part of the overall symmetry, being the square root of that magical sixty-four, but why did the sum of the trigrams not conform to the twenty-two codon signals of the genetic code? Why twenty-four? Why eight? The answer came when Hayes recalled that the numbers 4, 3, 64, 8, and 22 were significant components to the Hermetic Code and sacred geometries of the West, and more importantly, had a direct connection to music. The number 22 was a key number of the Pythagorean system principally because of its musical, musical aspect. What it represented was, in fact, three octaves of vibrations or notes, three sets of eight, 24 components. But where does 22 come in? The answer is very simple. If one sits at a keyboard instrument and begins with the note C and goes upward eight notes using only the white keys, one will arrive back at C, an octave higher, exactly eight notes later. Repeat the process again, and at the 16th note above the original, one arrives back at C, and again a third time, and one arrives back on the 24th note, which once again is C. But since two of these Cs are but repetitions of the original C, one might think of the three octaves as embodying the number 22, as well as 24. The implications of this were enormous, and Hayes was quick to perceive what they were. For from that time onward, the summer of 1984, I spent several years exploring the maze-like annals of history. I automatically assumed that if the Chinese and Greeks were tuned in to this ancient science, that it was probably that so were some of the other traditions and civilizations. As it turned out, the evidence was overwhelming. Everywhere I looked, I saw musical symbols beaming back at me. Every known major religion and esoteric tradition in recorded history had embraced this science. Here, in fact, was the missing common factor I had long felt existed, that magical ingredient that had given religious movements the power to affect the minds and hearts of billions in such a profound and extraordinary way. They were all unerringly based on the principle of harmony, a harmony that it echoed in, literally, every cell of our bodies in our DNA and in the genetic code. This is therefore a natural harmony. In other words, the numbers of the hermetic code or sac sacred geometry appear to be a legacy of a long lost civilization predating all the high civilizations of the classical era. The Sumerian, the Egyptian, the Mesopotamian, the Chinese, and the essence of that code was not only musical, but genetic. It was, as Hayes concluded, a natural harmony, and DNA itself was a natural resonator and transducer of it.
to the well-tempered cosmos. But with the idea that it represents a natural harmony, one also encounters yet another problem, a problem which reveals exactly how extraordinarily sophisticated the ancient Hermetic Code actually was. As I noted in my first book on alternative science and history, The Giza Death Star, the naturally occurring harmonic series is not what one encounters on a keyboard. To see what the problem is, we have to perform a simple experiment to demonstrate what physicists and musicians know as the harmonic series. Let us imagine one is sitting at the keyboard of an acoustic piano. Press down the note C silently with one hand, then strike the same note C an octave or two lower with the other hand. One will hear the open strings of the silently pressed note C vibrating sympathetically with the silently pressed note. This octave, that's my father's name by the way, octave, um, this octave is called the first harmonic or overtone of the fundamental C, the struck note. Now repeat the experiment, only this time press down the note G silently, but strike the note C, an octave or two below it. Again, one will hear the note G vibrating sympathetically with the struck C. G is the second overtone or harmonic of the fundamental C, and one notes that the interval, interval has decreased, G being what musicians know as the interval of the fifth from C, counting up five notes from C as with C as one gives G as the fifth. If one keeps repeating the experiment, with the intervals growing smaller and smaller, then the next overtone will be a fourth up from G, which is another C. The next interval is a major third, the note E. Then the next interval is a minor third, the note G. But now we encounter a problem, for the next interval, which occurs naturally, is not present on the keyboard, for it is the interval between the minor third and the major second, or in other words, a note lying between B flat and natural A, or lying in the cracks on the keyboard between those two notes. This interval was known to the ancients, and in fact is called the Pythagorean comma, for the Pythagoreans were well aware of it. Yet as Hayes has pointed out, the analogy between ancient esoteric schools and modern science only works on a modern keyboard. So what's going on here? Briefly, and a thorough explanation of this relationship would require a book in its own right. What happened with Western music, precisely as a result of the rediscovery of the esoteric tradition during the Renaissance, was that a tradition was applied to music and to the tuning of musical instruments, particularly keyboards, so that the naturally occurring harmonic series was deliberately tampered with, and a slight mathematical adjustment was made to the notes of the musical scale, so that each note was exactly an equal interval apart, allowing all notes to function as overtones of all other notes, and thus allowing a piece of music to change keys during a piece to the most distant keys without having to stop and retune the whole instrument. This tampered keyboard ushered in the era of modern Western music, beginning with Vivaldi, Scarlatti, Ramo, and J.S. Bach, 
who even celebrated its arrival by composing a piece of music called the well-tempered clavier, or to put it bluntly, bluntly, the well-tempered with keyboard. Rather than each note now having its own unique harmonic series, which did not overlap with other notes, each note now could function as any harmonic of any other note. This, and not Maxwell's electromagnetic theory, was the first unification in physics for, wow, he mentioned Maxwell, because that's what I was saying earlier, that Maxwell was the badass dude. Anyway, gotta, gotta check out his treatise one and two on electricity and magnetism uh, for he actually talks about trying to explain that there's an ether or a medium, which is this hyperdimensional physics. And he's the inspiration for a lot of folks. But let's continue. Uh, rather than each note now having its own unique harmonic series, which did not overlap with other notes, each note could now function as any harmonic of any other note. This, and not Maxwell's electromagnetic theory, was the first unification in physics. For now, rather than an infinite number of notes, each with their own unique harmonic series, one had only 12 notes, each of which could function as harmonics of all the others. The modern system of music had originated, in other words, with a slight adjustment in the system of measurement of musical intervals. This little musical detour now exhibits a profound implication, for what it really implies is that the ancients knew of this musical system and, moreover, knew that it held some connection to DNA itself. This is a profound indicator that the esoteric and hermetic code is a legacy of a very sophisticated scientific and musical culture. Yeah, I have to repeat again the whole thing about um, mitochondrial DNA being passed from women to their children and only down unbroken through women. Because if you look at even the, the title of this 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 chapter eight, and I, I think he might be getting to it as being, you know, why do they marry their cousins and, and have such, such colossally stupid offspring? But, um, but the fact, like, why would they, like, okay, so I was talking to somebody the other day, too, um, about how, you know, if you can prove that you have converted to Judaism, right, that you could, you could get, this is what was told to me by Amit Sharabi, who was a friend of mine who I met when he was in the United States taking photojournalism classes, he's from Israel, said that if you can prove that you have actually converted to Judaism, I don't know what kind of test they, they give you or whatever, but you would be given citizenship to Israel. But also that if your mother was, uh, was Jewish, then you can get uh, citizenship right to Israel. And this is interesting because of that's the only genetics that are unbroken is from mother to child. And also the the intermarrying of many Egyptian pharaohs and whatnot to their daughters and sisters and all this other stuff like that. But it was specifically through the women that this genetic code. Um, and so I'm only saying that because he's saying this is a profound indicator that the esoteric and hermetic code is a legacy of a very sophisticated scientific and musical culture, right? That that they, right? So that moreover, like for what it implies is that the ancients knew of this musical system and moreover knew that it held some connection to DNA itself. Right? So what else did they know about DNA, especially with the, the women passing on the genetic code? Maybe he'll talk about that here. Let's continue. Babylon's banksters, 
Hayes is quick to appreciate the implications of these considerations in terms of modern quantum mechanics and its view of quantum reality as being a non-local interconnected universe. Not surprisingly, the physicist whom he chooses as an example to illustrate this harmonic interconnectedness of systems in a very deep non-local hyperdimensional reality is David Bohm. In an attempt to explain the principle of non-locality and the idea of a vast web of interconnectedness permeating the whole universe, the University of London physicist David Bohm posited the existence of what he called quantum potential. He saw this as a new kind of energy field that, like gravity, pervades the whole universe, but whose influence does not weaken with distance. Bohm first recognized a possible indication of this quantum potential through his own work on plasmas, gases comprising a high density of electrons and positive ions, atoms with a positive charge. He noticed that the electrons, once they were in plasma, began to act in concert, as if they were all part of a greater interconnected whole. For example, if any impurities were present in the plasma, it would always realign itself and trap all foreign bodies in an exclusion zone just as a living organism might encase poison in a boil. Bohm observed also a similar orchestrated mass movement of electrons in metals and superconductors, with each one acting as if it knew what countless billions of others were about to do. According to Bohm, particles act in this way through the influence of the quantum potential, a sub-quantum force matrix that somehow coordinates the movement of the whole. It appears that when plasmas are rejecting impure substances and regenerating themselves, they look very similar to swirling masses of well-organized protoplasm. This curious organic quality led Bohm to comment that he often had the impression that the electron C was, in a sense, alive. He possibly did not intend this to be taken too literally, that the electron mass was living in the same way as an amoeba, but the evident highly coordinated symmetries of the plasma convinced him that the electrons were responding to one of many intelligent orders implicit in the fabric of the universe. Hayes' comments on these observations and their implications, drawing attention to the interlocking nature of all phenomena via the property of resonance. The whole universe is perpetually in motion, and all waves-slash-particles are continuously interacting and separating which means that the non-local aspect of quantum systems in a general characteristic of nature. Clearly, this represents, in the physical world, a harmony of the highest possible order. It is one thing to say that the universe is a harmonious entity because it is constructed entirely upon the eightfold chromodynamic and atomic matrices, but non-locality suggests that there exists a far deeper interconnecting harmony underlying all physical phenomena, where everything is resonating at the very same sub-quantum frequency. Everything is in tune with every other thing. Exactly as if one of the notes on a well-tempered cosmic keyboard functioning as an overtone to all other notes in a vast and interconnected harmonic series. And here, DNA enters the picture. For as Hayes has demonstrated, DNA would appear to be in some sense, a well-tempered clavier for the whole system, or exactly as the ancients understood mankind, a microcosm. But is there any correlation between modern science and this ancient esoteric doctrine? Indeed, there is. In my book, The Philosopher's Stone, 
Alchemy and the Secret Research for Exotic Matter, I refer to a scientific paper by Freeman W. Cope entitled Evidence from Activation Energies for Superconductive Tunneling in Biological Systems at Physiological Temperatures. What the hell? <laughs> this is like, this is ridiculous. It's, it's, it's things like this where I, um, where I, I play around with names of some of the articles that I write. Like, listen to how, how many words is in the title of this. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven, twelve, thirteen, fourteen, fifteen. Evidence from activation energies for superconductive tunneling in biological systems at physiological temperatures. Right. A title guaranteed to make the eyes glaze over unless one considers the profound implications hidden behind the dull scientific prose. But first, the dull scientific prose. In the present paper, evidence for another class of solid-state biological processes is given. It is suggested that single electron tunneling between superconductive regions may rate limit various may rate limit various nerve and growth processes. This implies that microregions of superconductivity exist in cells at physiological temperatures, which supports theoretical predictions of high-temperature organic superconduction. Superconduction is the passage of electron current without generation of heat and hence with zero electrical resistance. Such behavior has been observed in only in inorganic materials and only at temperatures below approximately 20 degrees Kelvin, although theory predicts that superconduction might occur in organic materials at room temperatures. The conduction of electrons across interfaces between adjacent superconductive layers behaves differently from current across ordinary solid junctions. Electron tunneling currents across interfaces between superconductive layers or regions have been predicted and demonstrated to have a particular form of temperature dependence. Little has suggested DNA as the sort of biological molecule along which electrons might superconduct. Hmm. In the Philosopher's Stone, my focus was on the enormous implications of DNA superconductivity. But here, our interest is on the other aspect of the phenomenon noticed by Cope, electron tunneling. The quantum tunneling phenomenon may be briefly understood by an illustration of what actually happens in quantum tunneling. Imagine one has an impermeable and impenetrable barrier, such as the wall of a biological cell, or a thick wall between two rooms, or even imagine the barrier as being the medium of space-time itself. Now, imagine a packet of waves approaching this barrier, like the interference pattern of two radar beams being bounced off the barrier and reflected back to the radar sets that generated the packet. But according to the wave equations of quantum mechanics, at the exact moment that this packet hits the barrier and is reflected back to the sets, a faint echo of that oncoming wave packet actually emerges on the other side of the barrier at that same instant and travels away from the barrier. In short, the oncoming signal tunnels through the barrier in almost wormhole-like fashion, and its echo emerges on the other side and travels away from the barrier 180 degrees opposite of the reflected signal traveling back to our radar sets. And as Cope notes in the section of the article cited above, DNA acts as exactly the sort of organic molecule that is able to accomplish this feat. It is as if organic life form 
it is as if an organic life form was a complex system being held together by superconductivity and quantum tunneling, a vast biological non-local network of tunneling nerve impulses. If so, then this might explain the basis of paranormal phenomena such as remote viewing, for DNA as such would interact directly with the information content within the field of local physical of the local physical medium. That makes sense, right? If a sound wave is hitting something and bouncing back, the thing that it's hitting is obviously going to reverberate. But in this case, it says like it's tunneling through it. Like you can hear sound through a wall coming through the other side. Like you can be in a room, right? And some people may have been in like in some poorly constructed rooms or hotel rooms or even um, temporary rooms of some kind. And there's music playing, right? And inside, if you're in the room where the music is playing, you can hear it echoing off the walls. But the people on the other side of the wall can also hear the music, sometimes um, very clearly as reproductions of it. And it's moving at a 180 degrees angle away from where it's bounced off of the walls back to the people in the room itself. So um, that is not even um, it's something that we, we have direct uh, experience with. Okay, so continuing. Uh, I'm going to continue here. So it is as if organ an organic life form was a complex system being held together by superconductivity and quantum tunneling, a vast biological non-local network of tunneling nerve impulses. If so, then this might explain the basis of paranormal phenomena such as remote viewing. For DNA, as such, would interact directly with the information content within the field of the local physical medium. With this, then, we have the final component of that ancient technology and science, the genetic and biological. And with it, we return once again to the banksters and why they seem inordinately interested in learning its secrets. D. The Ancient Contact the Rothschild-Nimrod myth in a wider context. If DNA is such a resonator and transducer of the information content in the local field of the physical medium, it stands to reason that some specific genotypes will be more efficient resonators of it than others. We are told in countless ancient texts from the Bible to the Sumerian epics to the Hindu epics of India to the legends of the Japanese Yamato peoples to the legends of Mesoamerican Indians that at some point of time, lost in the mists of prehistory, the gods came down and mingled with men, siring children of human women. In many of these legends, moreover, these ancient civilizing gods were self-evidently white Caucasians. Again, this is a common feature of such myths from Mesoamerica to the South American Incans and even ancient Japanese legends. Whatever the truthfulness of these claims might be, we have seen that since ancient times, an international banking class has consistently aligned itself with the temple, both with a view to giving their financial activities the sanction of the probity of the temple and thereby cloaking their actions, but also with a view to accessing the residues of that lost science and technology and potentially reconstructing and, reconsti and reconstituting it. And one such component, since the times of ancient Sumer and Babylonia, it sure is surely their Sumerian epics, insistence 
that at least some of humanity descends from such divine ancestors and their intermarriages with humans. And, given the laws of genetics, it is possible that, with a broad enough database, the outlines of such genetic intermingling might eventually be discovered. Such a database is, finally, within modern man's grasp, with the Human Genome Project. Human Genome Project. Well, by the way, the Human Genome Project is headed by Francis S. Collins, um, who is uh, supposedly, uh, according to himself, a Christian. So he even wrote a book um, called The Language of God. Um, some time ago, which I have, uh, yeah, Francis S. Collins, the head of the Human Genome Project, the, the uh, Language of God is one of his books about DNA. Interesting read. Uh, continuing uh, Babylon's Banker. Such a database is finally within modern man's grasp with the Human Genome Project. While many researchers point out the obvious and deadly potential that such a project entails for the design and engineering of race-specific bioweapons, I am bold to suggest that there might be yet another hidden purpose, namely to find and isolate those genotypes within humanity that point to a possible extraterrestrial connection. Again, the myth of the Rothschild descent from Nimrod, himself a product of such intermarriages, if one consults the Sumerian records, suggests that, suggests that one such banking dynasty is aware of this connection. And indeed, as researchers Glenn Yeadon and John Hawkins have noted, there is a deep connection between the Human Genome Project and the hidden hand of the Anglo-American international bankster class, and a deeper connection to the American eugenics movement with its own white supremacist overtones. Currently, the Cold Spring Harbor Laboratory is a leader in the Human Genome Project. While the Genome Project will undoubtedly provide many future medical benefits, it could equally provide weapons of mass destruction, such bioweapons or even more evil genome-specific bioweapons. The Project for the New American Century, PNAC, describes genome-specific weapons as politically useful tools. PNAC serves as the blueprint for the George W. Bush administration, with many members closely associated with PNAC. With the Bush administration's disregard for human rights and the ban on nuclear testing, it is cause for alarm to find Cold Spring Harbor firmly controlled by the same families involved in the American eugenics movement. Current directors William Jerry and Alan Dulles and Alan Dulles Jepson are the grandsons of Avril Harriman and Alan Dulles, respectively. When such policies and organizations slip under the control of families like the Bushes and Rockefellers, they can be used as modern-day weapons of genocide. While the close association of the same old families with the Genome Project is a cause of concern, and for the same reasons Eden and Hawkins suggest, within the wider context of this book, the close association of these families with the project calls forth concern for more than the reason they elicit. For it would appear that, once again, these families are trying their best through all the vast network of foundations, grants, corporations, and other fronts at their disposal to learn and reconstruct as much of that ancient science and perhaps of their own family history as possible. With DNA, we have the last component of the physics puzzle. The other pieces being, as we have seen, the data of recurrent economic cycles the peculiar correspondence of astrological alignments with economic depressions, the idea of a deep connection between the physics of the medium and the false alchemy of the banksters. 
We have seen the persistent efforts of some nations to free themselves from the influence of that class and, in Nazi Germany's case, the attempt also to crash develop the paradigms of a new and very old physics. We have seen the persistent association of the banksters with religion, with the temple, and in turn, the persistent association of the te ancient temple with astronomical alignments, with positioning on a global grid, and with the peculiar incorporation of scalar physics into the very design and dimension of ancient temples. So now it is time to assemble the pieces together and explain what's going on and to offer a speculative explanation of why it's going on. That is it. And thank goodness. Let's take a look here at Colin. What does uh, uh, Anthony? Oh, yeah, there we go. You still here, Anthony? All right. I'm done. So here we go. I got you invited to speak. Come on up, sir. And uh, I sent the invite. I'll send it again just in case you didn't get it. And uh, we got Anthony Thomas over here, formerly on Wisdom. What's going on, Anthony? What's happening? All right. Well, I'll send it. <clears throat> well, if Anthony, that was 18 minutes ago. I mean, I was reading. Uh, don't forget the Bagua. Yeah. So, is it still there? Well... That's okay. All right. Well, that's it for uh, Babylon's Banksters. Let's see what else I got here. Um, the next section coming up. Let me, let me check my time. What was it? How, how long have I been doing this? Oh, that's perfect. An hour and 13. So definitely under the time that I, I wanted. That's good. I'm glad these are getting shorter at some point. So this is going to conclude uh, Chapter 8 of Babylon's Banksters by Joseph E. Perel. Um, and coming up next, not today, because I'm done for now, right? Coming up next, I'm going to be getting into um, chapter nine. Let me reopen this file here again. So that was that was chapter eight, which was um, titled, oh boy, Temples, Templates, Genomes. And banksters, or why do they all seem to marry cousins and and something like produce uh, colossally stupid kids? Um, and next is going to be um, nine, which is the banksters' real business: the pattern of war, scarcity, suppression, slavery, and monopolization. And that starts off with a quote that says, in the course of the next several decades, a functioning structure of global cooperation based on geopolitical realities could thus emerge and gradually assume the mantle of the world's current region, which has for the time being assumed the burden of responsibility for world stability and peace. Geostrategic success in that cause would represent a fitting legacy of America's role as the first only and last truly global superpower and that is by Zbigniew Brzezinski and that's going to start off chapter 9 the banksters real business the pattern of war scarcity suppression slavery and monopolization I'll take a look over here oh there we got Anthony and Jenny
Jenny, I'm finishing up here. Um, I invited Anthony up, but he seems to be um, uh, in uh, hiding himself out. How you doing, Jenny? Good. That Brzezinski fellow was quite the globalist. And he yeah. was mighty upset that nationalism started to rear its mighty power while he was still alive. After all these decades of moving towards the global communist all-encompassing juggernaut, Donald Trump shows up and starts talking about America first, and he was really upset. I would imagine. Um, <clears throat> uh, you weren't here for the, the, the brunt of this, but it was... Um... It was a pretty interesting read because uh, he's um, the author, uh, Joseph P. Farrell, put together some pretty interesting pieces with DNA, musical notes, the I Ching, and various other ancient um, connections to the banking system and the banking class. So they are, a they are a level of evil that is quite staggering. Well, yeah, I mean, well, it could be evil. I don't know. It, it, it could just be this, you know, they might not consider it to be evil. Just like, you know, um, you know, snakes eating, eating rabbits don't think that it's evil. Right. You know, it's, uh, it's just how it is. Hey, um, are you going on tonight? Yes, I'll be on at seven. And I have so, a question for you. Yeah. Wait, seven, I, wait, your time or my time. Where are you at? Seven Colorado time. It'll be nine o'clock your time. Okay, good. I'll, I'll be ready for that. Yeah, my question is, I signed up for Wisdom today, assuming that I could just go ahead and do live broadcasts, but it readily became apparent you had to be a, be there for a while before that you you could do a live show. So how long did it take you before you obtained that level? Um, well, I was invited at that level, but... Um, one thing you can do to start that process is to um, uh, add your different social media accounts if you have them because they want, they want to be able to confirm your identification, like who you really are. So if you have um, – there, there's different features in there that have um, – where you can sign up, uh, put your Instagram, your Facebook, and different things like that, and then, um, you know – go on to a few people's talks and have discussions with them. You know, we can do that as well. Um, and then maybe send a message to um, so, some people. I can give you, you know, their names and stuff like that. And you can request to get the um, the uh, the broadcasting or, or live privileges. I don't know when that happened. I, before I assumed that people could, um, could automatically go live before, but I'm pretty sure that if you go ahead and put, you know, connect your social media accounts to kind of to verify your identity, you'll at least get the purple star in which you can be able to start to to go on. Uh, okay. Start talking. I don't know where that limitation came from. I never had it, so I never really kind of looked into it. But um, I think that that's one suggestion. But we can work together on that and figuring it out. That's awesome. Yeah, I was really impressed. I, I'm ashamed to admit that I went over there one time when you first told me about it a couple of months ago. And I felt a little bit overwhelmed, and I was like, I just don't have the gumption to take on another app. And so I just walked away. But after you were talking last night and with Julie, she was so kind. I thought, you know, I'm going to go check this out again. So I did. Yeah. Um, it, it's really a, a good space. Remember, the thing that keeps me using these different services and apps and stuff like that is not what most people might 
consider how they're using it because um, I am very self-centered in how I'm using the, the platforms. I have an agenda in where I want to put out specific pieces of material that have, for the most part, a defined beginning, middle, and end. And so it doesn't really matter if anybody's listening or not or if I talk to anybody on it because I'm creating basically a whole course for myself, right? Um, where it's where I can put it up there. I know what it's about. Like I'm reading these books and I'm really self-studying and then sharing my process with people where I, you know, even today, like for example, there were several words which I wasn't that familiar with or pronunciations I didn't handle well. And so I'm just going along through the learning process and recording it um, and basically being efficient with my process of also being able to create content that, that will be useful to other people in their own studies. I told you about my experience of reading Thomas Sowell's economics book and how I had to get out a dictionary because oh. I didn't know the language either. You know, Thomas Sowell, he's, he's um, uh, referred to over and over again in the book that I read yesterday, uh, the, um, the, the Capitalist Manifesto, where you met Julie after I was reading that. Yeah, he's, he's such a stalwart. I love him. Yeah, so he's a, he's a, he's, I'm starting to find out he's a good author. What, what was the book that you were reading of his? I think it was just called Economics or Economics 101. It was one yeah. of his early books. He wrote it, you know, probably 30, 35 years ago. But um, it was way over my head. And I I was very humbled to realize there was an economics lingo that I did not speak. Oh, yeah. Well, I've been learning that, too. But I've quickly become acclimated to it and starting to realize that um, – as time goes along, you know, you get you get really familiar with it, just like anything else, because it's it's linguistics. You know, once you start learning the language of what you're looking at, all of it starts to open up so clearly. And that's why I keep doing this every day and persistently pushing through it, because it's it's like the fog is slowly lifting. And I'm seeing so many things more clearly. Yeah, I listen to the All In Pod every week. Do you listen to that? Um, no. Uh, do they have it on Colin or is it elsewhere? It's most, I watch it on YouTube, but it's David Sachs and his three best oh. friends. Oh, David Sachs, wasn't he one of the founder of, of Colin, right? Yes. That's yeah. how I discovered him. And they're all venture capitalists and they're really funny. And so I enjoy just the banter. I love when they talk about politics, but they will go off talking about business. And there's so many terms that they use that I've never heard. And they're, you know, just talking this business talk, insider economic talk, a lot of Wall Street stuff. And I just don't know it. And so my, my mm. eyes sort of glaze over because I just don't I don't understand what they're talking about. But it's the same thing. It's like I'm going to I keep listening because I want I want to understand. That's the best way to do it. It's full immersion. Sometimes you won't understand it first. But as you keep going on, it happened to me. Um Mind if I share a quick story about a, 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 some pre-med classes I was taking? Oh, I'd love to hear it. So I'm going to do this as quickly as possible. So I was taking a, a class called the Journal Club. It was a biology class in in California, and it was to do med classes to go to pre-med to go to medical school for pre-med classes, so that I could become a psychiatrist, which is eventually what I wanted or thought I wanted to do. But then I realized how much work it was and how I am not cut out for that kind of thing. But um, the journal club consisted of, of us being choosing a scientific research paper in biology and then working with a partner or a group 
and then coming back and uh, you know like a week or two later however it was i forget how long it was and then presenting a powerpoint presentation demonstrating how much you understood the work well in my first class um when the first day we got there we were being assigned the papers i got partnered with this really beautiful persian girl um which was completely by accident but I just mentioned that for the details of things I remember. Who well, I thought, for all intents and purposes, she she would be a good partner because I just did. I just waited till the end of the class, and then finally she picked me. After she waited as well, she didn't choose anybody else as a partner. Exchanged phone numbers. We're supposed to do this project. Never heard from her. I had no idea what to do. When I got back after never talking to this person, right? <laughs> I get up in the front of the class, and I just basically start with the paper in hand, start reading it verbatim. And the teacher stopped and she's like, okay, stop, 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 stop. She's like, can you not just read from the paper? Can you give us your ideas? Where's your computer, your laptop? Where's your PowerPoint? And I felt so embarrassed and that I didn't do the project. And the girl didn't have any input at all. She didn't share anything. She just sat, sat there and just let me make an idiot myself. I was so incensed that the, after that class, because I was the last one to go, after that class, during the class, they were giving the second research papers to go and for the second and final, um, you know, exam or, or project. And they went around again. People got grouped up. That girl, she got snatched up in some other group. And I was the last person sitting alone, no group. And so there were groups of like two people, three people. And they finally came around to me and she says, would you like to join one of those groups? I said, no, I'm going to do it by myself. She said, um, well, we have these two papers left. Everybody took all the papers. You got two of them to choose one, choose from. And I chose this paper. And she says, um, are you sure you want to do that? Even though it's shorter, it's t technically more difficult than the other one. Maybe you should do this one. And I said, no, I'm going to take this one. Because I knew that it was technically more difficult. And, and I also didn't want to team up with anybody. And I was determined to do this by myself. So I went home, bought a bunch of index cards and like highlighters and things like that. When I went to work, I started reading the paper. Within like the first sentence, I came up with a word I didn't understand. Wrote it down, defined it, went online. I had all these medical and scientific and chemistry dictionaries and all this stuff together. And I started writing as many definitions as I can, highlighting them and all that. It took me for like, I don't even know how long. I was up through all night until I finally got every word I didn't understand defined through there and was reading through the whole thing and had it so perfectly down pat that when I went into the class and it was time for the presentation to go down, not only did I get the laptop from my girlfriend, Lydia, at the time and, and set up the perfect PowerPoint presentation, but I delivered it so well that people were like laughing, like with jokes that I was making about it. And at the end of the class, they came up to me and people were, were asking me questions. How did you do that? You, that, this is like a master at this. Da, 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 like, where do you study before? The, like, they were they completely forgot that I had made a, an idiot of myself in the first class, and even the teacher was completely impressed. She said, "Wow, that was a complete 180 from what happened before." She's like, "That is amazing," and you know, and so that is one of the things that I learned very clearly about learning the language of something. That once you get it. Uh, you, you seriously become on par with the with the top experts in the world, at least on a PhD level. You know, I'm not talking about doing that for like for doing surgery or anything like that. But if you want to do research and and you know have conversations with the the top dogs in the PhD level, you can definitely do it. Yeah, I think the the most exciting thing about taking on economics, and I started in high school when I first read 
Ayn Rand's book, The Fountainhead, and then I read Atlas Shrugged. And in economic circles, they call the reading of Atlas Shrugged losing your economic virginity because it's such an eye-opening book. It's, a, it's fiction, but it's a 900-page mm. book. And um, I read that in high school, so that was where I started. And from that day to this, it's just been kind of line upon line, precept upon precept. And I don't claim to know it all, you know, on any level. But I keep persisting and reading books and trying to figure it out. And uh, oh, yeah. I think I've forgotten more than I ever learned. <laughs> no, you just kind of forget if it's been a few years. But yeah, Well, that's why I just stick with it every single day, you know. Um, yeah. I make sure that I am in it all the time because then it makes it so that I don't forget. And, and then, you know, I think it's hilarious how people then try to get into these arguments with me about stuff when they've only read small portions of books like a long time ago only for school and they're never reading anything ever again, uh, you know, and I'm doing this every single day all the time. So it's not, it doesn't, it's not leaving me. It's not some old, you know, archaic piece of information that I might have studied just to get a grade, but, the, you know, people in their arrogance... They have, yeah. well, it's actually arrogance, uh, actually ignorance, because arrogance actually means to claim for one's own. They're not even claiming it for their own by making it their own material, by actually knowing it. They just skimmed over the surface so they could get a good grade in the class. Well, I had a moment in 2009 when I, w I gave the opening speech at the first Denver Tea Party. And I don't know if you followed the Tea Party movement, but it was all about economics. Even though they claimed it was racist, it was not. It was about economics. So I gave this opening speech at the first Denver Tea Party, and I talked about Atlas Shrugged. And I had read the book like 11 times at that point. And I just gave this speech kind of off the top of my head. I hadn't even written any notes. It was short, but it was from the heart, you know. And then I had to, I had brought my son with me, and he had to be to school, kindergarten late afternoon so I had to scoot so I left right away took him to school and then a couple of months later I organized one of the other big tea parties we had in September of 2009 at the Denver Capitol and a woman came up to me afterwards and she said I heard you give that speech at the first one she said I thought that was the best explanation of Ayn Rand's philosophy that I have ever heard mm. and it was just thrilled me that someone knew it that well yes. and that that was my moment of like oh my gosh somebody actually believed it was i did a good job you know because i didn't get the, the speech on film i can hardly remember what i said now you know but she said it you know it was really good and so that meant a lot to me to just be so diligent at least with ein's objectivist philosophy and her economic principles which you know she's very popular i'm sure you've heard her name bandied oh, yeah. about mm -hmm. in, in economic circles yeah, and, I mean, um, again, in that book that I read yesterday, he quoted her several times as well. Anne Rand is quoted throughout the whole book, Capitalist Manifesto. Yeah. Well, it was her philosophy that I applied to my mothering uh, that really changed things for me in the way I, I approached my daily work as a mom. And it was kind of like, you know, what what would objectivism look like if I'm just thinking of my own mothering as I'm a small business you know, mm. I believe every small family is their own 
independent business. And yeah, the, the, the couples you harshly for that stuff. They're like, no, it shouldn't be like that. But even somebody was arguing with me the, the other day about that, about, no, you can't operate your family or your life like a business. Like, oh, yes, you can. It doesn't mean that it has to be cold and impersonal, but there's things like budgeting and planning, right? But sorry, go ahead. No, these are kitchen table issues. Most yeah. In most families, it's the moms who make the most decisions about how the money is spent. And the better run each individual home, the better society does everywhere. It's not just oh, yeah. an American thing. And all over the world, moms are working side hustles along with their mothering to try and put food on the table and make things work. And so it wasn't just about the money. It was about time and resources. And yeah. what do I invest my time into? And how do I get the most bang for my buck with my kitchen work and the things I buy to feed my kids? And how can I do this more efficiently and more you know, concentrated and what, what should I let go? What's, what's not important. Mm -hmm. These are all issues that families have to grapple with every day. And so I give, I'm the credit Ayn Rand for shaping my thinking away from collectivism, Marxism, somebody else will solve my problems for me. I'll just get a loan. I'll put it all in a credit card or whatever. You know, it's like, no, own your own home, own your own, uh, small economy with your own resources. And then work to make a profit, have some money in the bank. You know, every time we got $5,000 in savings, we had a crisis that cost about $5,000. Mostly it was me having a, a health crisis, yeah. but we had the money to pay for it, right. you know, because we're constantly saving. And so it's these types of things that I think are, you know, just a, a, a hedge against anything that comes up in life. That just makes you more autonomous, more self-reliant, and you're not such a freaking victim. Yeah, it's um, it's a very important thing to do to all, all of those things, and not to just look on one side. I, I I I love referring to that idea of the that a coin has three sides: heads, tails, and an edge. And if you stand on the edge, by by knowing both sides, you can make better informed decisions. And 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 the whole thing about looking at a family life or even your personal life as a business i mean the thing is is that my life right now is run like a business there's no separation from it but that's also because i've been fortunate enough to be stubborn enough to my entire life pursue that one thing that everybody's heard before do what you love and the money will follow right so i've stuck with that so that there's not really that much of a difference between the things i love to do and my and my business it's just they're one thing you know i always heard from my mom everything happens for a reason was number one uh number two there's always room for improvement number three do what you love and the money will follow and number four was what do you mean can't right and so i've followed those things as closely as i possibly could and found ways over and over again and now technology has caught up with it to, to help make that happen but i've just stuck with what I wanted to do and it's the same thing like my my life where I go how I travel my podcasting reading books driving my car all of it is there are things that I like to do and they just my I there's no separation so I, I my, my recreation and my vocation is all intertwined into one thing so I don't yeah, know and I don't believe in compartmentalizing my life I am a whole being who is spiritual and physical and emotional, uh, economic, and it's all one big whole. 
And so I don't feel like I have to compartmentalize or hide. I am circumspect about what I share with various audiences, knowing that if I speak too much, I I might get chased out of a space as I, as I have many times. And so I'm more circumspect with certain groups. Don't have to, you know, wear your heart on your sleeve all the time, but I share enough that I share enough that people know how I feel about things. Yeah. Well, I mean, you can't share the things that you do, especially, and be um, and expect not to happen. A lot of people don't want to hear the stuff that you want to share because it, it you know, it's going to for- it forces a lot of people to take personal responsibility that they don't want to, because it requires people to look at everything from their diet to their shopping habits to where they go, what they support, so on and so forth. And you know, hardly anybody wants to do that. And then, of course, it especially you work in in vaccine and vaccine awareness is what i'll call it um that's also something that a lot of uh institutions don't want to be spread around so um but you got to be who you are and stay true to it i try you know i try not to be a hypocrite sometimes and children are very helpful in this way they're they're very willing to point out your hypocrisies especially when they're 17 years old they'll, they're, they'll come at you with a list mm. of grievances <laughs> mom this is what's wrong with you and it's like you have to be humble enough to say okay there's there's some legitimacy here but it's it's a shaking that most people you know it's nobody wants to go through that especially with your own kid oh no very difficult so what's um what, what's going to be the title of your show later today on Colin here? It's always Jenny Hatch Live, and I'm going to zero in again on the incident that took place here in Colorado at a school. A kid had a Gadsden flag, you know, don't tread on me, patch mm. on his backpack, and he well, was kicked out of school. Because, because, you know, those are all over the license plates here in Virginia. You know, there's know. license plates that you can buy. It's like, what's the problem with that? Well, he was able to do a couple of big interviews today. And so the word's getting out, and the school immediately backed down, said, oh, come back to class. He thought if he did not get the viral response on Twitter and various people stepping up just to talk about his situation, he thought he'd be suspended. And he's just this little seventh-grade guy, you know. The Gadsden flag. What's the significance of the Gadsden flag? What's the problem with it? Don't tread on me. The teacher claimed that it was a racist symbol. And the mom went to a meeting with her to discuss it because he'd been kicked out of class. And she said it's a revolutionary war symbol. And the teacher was insistent, no, this is a racist symbol. We just can't allow it. And the mom videotaped the conversation and Mm. posted it online. And so the, the conversation was you know, that's what went viral. And then people started responding because, you know, you can have any symbol you want in a public school today depicting just about anything. Yeah. But if you post something that's conservative, patriotic, you wear a Trump hat or a Trump T-shirt. Oh, you're you're the kid who needs to be expelled. Anyway, it's just more culture war stuff. So that's what I'm going to talk about. Cancel culture BS. Yeah. Weaponizing of of all this stuff. I know, I know, I know what it is. Like, you know, just I was talking before, just because I, um, you know, had read a book from Donald Trump and liked it, you know, all of a sudden I'm a Trumper and um, that's reason for people to come yell and scream at me, right? Like, even if I was a Donald Trump supporter, right? 
why is that a reason to come and yell and scream at me? Like, you know, I don't support Donald Trump. You do. But do you hear me yelling and screaming at you about your your your, your support for Donald Trump? No. What's the point in all that? Well, try being an anti-vaxxer, vaccine abolitionist, Trump supporter for the last eight years. This was the twofer that, you know, put me in, in the naughty corner with a lot of people. And it's it's been supremely uncomfortable. I, I mean, people have literally been tra- trained to hate anti-vaxxers. And that's not yeah. just the last three years. That's been building for decades. Painting well, us as the others, painting us as the outliers. Uh, you know, the the memes that, that were generated during COVID about what should be done to us, you know, locked up, rounded up, put in prison, branded, hided, hid away from society. I mean, this is like Nazi level language just because mm. you don't want to get a shot. Well, you know, it's easier to convince people um, or it's easier to fool people than to convince them that they've been fooled or to let them know that they've been fooled, something like that. I know that's how the saying goes. But, yeah, people are more easily brainwashed than they are told that they've been brainwashed. I like to say the greatest trick that a hypnotist could ever pull is convincing the world they can't be hypnotized, which is exactly what has happened. The greatest trick the devil ever pulled is convincing the world that it doesn't exist. Because people are hypnotized and brainwashed all the time and have no idea because there's this big myth around where people say, I don't believe in hypnosis as if it's like a, a religious system. And they're saying, I can't be hypnotized or that doesn't work on me. Meanwhile, people are running around buying all these name brands and feeling inadequate because they don't have the latest iPhone or because they're not keeping up with the Joneses and all this other stuff like that and then claim to not be brainwashed. That's what that is. But, you know, what do I know? I only went to one of the best schools for clinical hypnosis on the entire planet that's registered that somehow slipped underneath the radar and is, is, is recognized by the Department of Education. So, I mean. I know. I have a steady stream of people who've called me naive and gullible, naive and gullible. And it's like, you know, that's your assessment after, what, five minutes or an hour listening to me? That's fine. You know, I'm a little bit more complex than that. But if you choose not to go explore who I am and what I believe and what I've done, you know, that's on you. And I, I like I said last night, I'm trying to find the lighthearted, funny way to share the messages. Mm. And, you know, today Mitch McConnell had a senior moment and mm-hmm. for like 30 seconds just bugged out right on camera, didn't talk. His aides had to rush to his side. And so I made a little meme mm-hmm. about that, just put it on my, my Twitter account. And I just like to take something ironic and and just make it a little bit joyful with music and some funny. And and that's who that's honestly who I am. I'm just here to have a good time. I know it. Well that's why I do my best even with my accents as bad as they might be. You know, I just <laughs> I have to separate my the, the voices so to to make light of it because you know, sometimes it can get too you know, too straightforward, too boring. I don't want to be that way. So, no. but I'm going to catch up with you at uh, nine o'clock. I'm going to take a break in a little bit here because um, I've been reading for hours. I did. This is my third reading, and wow. uh, they've been. One of them was only thirty minutes, but one was another. Another one was like almost two hours. So that's two and a half hours plus this. Um, yeah, two and a half. It's exhausting. Three, I know. Yeah. I did an, an, a show last night for over an hour, and at the end of it, I was like, okay, I think I need to stop. I'm going to try yeah. and keep my shows under an hour. So, I do it my best. Be- 
but I realized, yeah, and at two hours is the max, but I, but, um, you know, but I'm going to be on all night. I'm going to be listening and then maybe talking to you about what you have. And then I'm going to be on some other stuff. So it's just, you know. That's awesome. Well, we're, we're going to eat anyway. So thank you for letting me call in and uh, hopefully we'll talk to you later. Yeah, Jenny, I will definitely be there at nine o'clock. Thanks okay. for coming up. Bye-bye. All right. Let's see. I don't know where Anthony, Tony is. Um, he asked me to bring him up, but he's not. So that's all. <clears throat> oh, good. And she sent me the link to the all in podcast that she was talking about. It's been an hour and 43 minutes. I was reading Babylon's Banksters. So y'all, you have been listening to Babylon's Banksters, Templates, Genomes, and, well, you heard the rest of it, presented by Hakeem Alibokas Alexander here on Spreaker, Social Podcasting, Wisdom, Social Audio Inc., and Colin, Social Podcasting, presented for World Reading Club in association with exercisingyourmind.com and Uniquilibrium. Thank you for passing through or sitting a spell to listen. Bling Vieira, Doobie, thanks for the uh, the emojis there. Bupender, Sudoku Mop, hello, hello, how you doing? Uh, Dayo Akinrenade, the founder of Wisdom was here. Uh, TaylorMade, Shane Simple, L, simply L, like the, uh, the artist formerly known as. Let's see, Brad, a modern pilgrim. Oh, hey, Brad. Um, Vin Tran, Takia Williams, Lee News Debate, hey Lee, uh, Greg's Take, Truly Julie, what's up, uh, Mojo, Martin W, Cecilia Grace, kudos, which is coming up I think in a half an hour, Eye Opener Society, Mon, does that mean Moon, what is that, Mon, is that Monique, what is that going on there, Duana Carl, Josiah Winston, Marcianne, Kate, Halden Parish and Moon Room Reading. Thanks once again for everybody stopping by. And Tony over here on, on Colin, as well as Jenny Hatch calling in. Jenny Hatch is now on Wisdom. We'll be getting her through here and seeing if she can start um, making some talks herself. And, uh, oh, yeah, that's it. I got to take a break. Everyone, be well until next time. Stay well.